pull up a seat to the edge of table with Nicole Biscotti and Melissa Seiboth. Welcome. We're so glad that you've decided to pull up a seat to the edge of table. I'm Melissa Seidbotham, and I'm here with my good friend, Nicole. Hi, I'm Nicole Biscotti. The edge of table is a place for parents and educators to share ideas and perspectives. This conversation between parents and educators has become a critical one, given what we're all dealing with at the moment and the impact that it's having on education and on our children. Today, we'll be discussing the pandemic and its impact on global education. Today, we've got a wonderful panel of guests, and let's go ahead and get started by introducing Steve Sostak. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Melissa, first of all, thanks for having me, and uh, Nicole as well. It's great to finally get a chance to talk to you. Um, I'm co-director of Inspire Citizens. I was a classroom teacher in uh, grade four and grade six and grade eight for 16 years, and recently started Inspire Citizens with my colleague, Aaron Moniz. And we work with international schools and schools globally, uh, public schools. We do sort of NGO work as well to bring global competence and civics-based education into pre-existing curriculum and just really liven up the classroom to uh, do good for the world. So that is what we do at Inspire Citizens. That's fantastic. And let's go ahead and say a big welcome to a return guest, Evan Whitehead. Can you go ahead and and reintroduce yourself? Hi, Melissa. Yes, uh, my name is Evan Whitehead. I'm a central office uh, administrator here in the Chicagoland area. Um, Also, um, I have been doing a lot of work on social, emotional learning and wellness. Um, I work with uh, Dr. Ruby K. Payne in the AHA process as as a national consultant um, and presenter for emotional poverty in all demographics. And I've also recently been doing some work with some international educators as well and um, further expanding my knowledge about the scope of um, global education and how we can um, further support students um, to be more um, globally proficient. Wonderful. And next up, we've got Jeremy Burke. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, Melissa. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you again as well for having me. Um, I am currently the uh, executive vice president for Stratford Schools, which is a a large group of private schools in California. Um, Prior to having this network-wide district position, Um, I spent the majority of my career working in international schools around the world in four different continents. So I bring um, maybe an interesting U.S.-based and global perspective to today's conversation. And we're so glad that you're here. Next up, we we have another Melissa on the show. Melissa Slynn, can you go ahead and, and share who you are? Hi, everybody. Um, My name is Melissa Slynn. I am a mom of three. Um, I have a junior, a freshman, and a seventh grader. Um, And I am also a school board member for our um, local school district. Um, And I'm from the Chicagoland area. Welcome to the show. And I want to thank you all for taking the time during these challenging times that we're having to be here with us today. You all have a wealth of experience and Um, perspectives that can really help us to learn. The first question that we have today is, with this pandemic occurring 
what is it actually exposing about learning across the world? How is it exposing um, maybe some underlying truths or um, inadequacies in our education system? Evan, would you like to answer first? Sure. Um, you know, from a perspective here in the U.S., um, and particularly, you know, when we, when we think about communities um, and school environments that are very diverse, I would say the thing that um, has been exposed and magnified are inequities um, that we have within our school systems and our communities, um, things such as the digital divide, um, social, social um, economic status, um, those, those things, especially in communities um, of low income, you know, the challenges that we're now facing in terms of distance learning um, are even more evident than they were before. So I think it's, it's going to force us or it's forcing us to truly reflect um, in terms of the educational scope and the work that we do um, and how we're really trying to, to close some of those gaps and look at the inequities that exist um, so that, you know, moving forward, we can make sure that truly every, every student, every child has um, access and opportunity. That's very interesting because you're coming from the perspective of a district administrator here in Chicago. And I wonder for Steve, um, you're working more on an international platform with the work that you do. What are you seeing as um, sort of the inadequacies or the truths that this pandemic, pandemic, excuse me, is exposing about education? I think some of it comes down to, you know, what is some of the basic pedagogical approaches that teachers are comfortable with in, you know, the 21st century or the, the global classroom? Um, Evan and I do a lot of talking. So Evan, everything you just said, I, I 100% agree with. But what I would want to look a little bit more at is how do we support our students to get their head around really what's happening? So it could be everything from do they have the skills and, and the uh, ability to understand the truth and to really understand what's going on uh, in the world? And are teachers comfortable with giving the kids the keys uh, to be able to do that? Um, a second piece to piggyback on what Evan was saying is I think um, giving children a sense of uh, social emotional well-being at a time like this where teachers are we comfortable taking a breath and being able to say right now we need to make sure that we're meeting our basic needs the kids and the families and even ourselves as teachers and let's focus on wellness first and as we kind of get our head around that and we seek the truth within that setting that I think we can start to bring back a little more of what we can do in our quote-unquote, everyday classroom experience. Yes, that's a very interesting point that you bring up about the social-emotional wellness because I'm also a teacher, and as I'm sending out lessons and I'm reflecting on, you know, our lessons going digital and, and all this kind of scrambling that educators are doing, I'm thinking also about we don't know where these kids are emotionally with what's going on. And the other piece of it is, as you touched on, do they have the global competency to really tie this situation together and understand what's happening worldwide? So we're discussing our lessons that we've, we've always been focused on, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. So it does seem to be a little bit disjointed in, in a sense. Jeremy, what would you say that um, you feel that are the kind of the truths that are being exposed about education during this pandemic? 
Yeah, I would come back to a lot of what uh, Evan said as well. Um, there was a really interesting article recently, an op-ed piece in the LA Times, and it was written by Rob Jenkins, who's the chief education officer for, for UNICEF. And one of the things that he does at the beginning of the article is he catalogs the Ebola crisis in West Africa and the response to that and the social, economic, educational fallout um, from that scenario that affected roughly 5 million children in this area. Um, And what he then begins moving on to in the second half of the piece is um, he begins illuminating for us in the United States that what happened in West Africa is very likely to happen again here within our own school districts. Um, You know, issues related to access to technology, um, the numbers of students that rely on free and reduced lunch for their daily sustenance, um, the numerous families that rely on specialized services that they no longer have access to, and just the simple fact that a lot of students, when they get disconnected from their educational experience, sometimes just simply drop out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a really, it was an interesting and sobering piece that I'd encourage everyone to just take a look at and read through. That's very interesting because you're right. We can learn from things like this that have happened in other parts of the world and ourselves begin to develop the global competencies to understand what we're dealing with as educators. Melissa, from your standpoint as a board member and as a mother, what do you feel like the situation has exposed about learning and, and education? So, um, as far as like my, for my own children, I've been much more tuned into how they are, um, how they're feeling, um, emotionally. And, um, I've noticed that, you know, all three of them are, they learn differently and, um, it, it helps me to see the big picture um, as far as for my school board position um, to keep in mind that all kids learn differently and how worth when things are being thrown at them, like they're just as uncomfortable as the adults are. Um, but I've been also pointing out to my kids that this is new for their teachers too. Um, and so I think that we're all learning together. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind too. That's so true. I think that that whether we're talking about an individual school or a district or a country or the globe, we really are in this together and and we have to make sure that we we are there for each other. And that's one of the reasons why I think conversations like this are are so important. Let's go ahead and move into our second question. Now, in education, we've we've often referred to this kind of global society that we live in, and we've talked a lot about whether or not we're preparing our kids to be these global citizens. Can anybody, who would like to shed some light on whether or not you think that we are preparing them, and is there anything about what's going on right now that's going to shift that a little bit? Who would like to go ahead and jump in on that? Steve, go, why don't you yeah, tell us a little bit? I'll go ahead because, in, in essence, that's you know the work that Inspire Citizens is doing is is trying to sort of answer that question. 
in different contexts, right? We're based in Beijing, so we have to look at what is global competence in a Chinese public context as well as an uh, international school context there and in the various countries that we work. We work on five different continents right now. With that said, we're trying to get our head around what are some of those common themes that um, can really unify us and, and, and bring us together with this idea or a common thread of what it means to be a global citizen. And it's, it's something that I think we need to start looking at as it's not another thing. It's something that we should be doing. It should be inherently embedded or really the why of why we educate is this idea of civics and citizenship and empathy and action in your community and collective wellness and sustainable development. Those things should be the why of school and utilizing our skills in our schools to you know, help kids to amplify and empower them to, um, to make a change in their lives or in their communities or in the global community, Right. So helping build a common vocabulary that can be personalized and contextualized across socioeconomic borders and, you know, um, country borders, if you will, um, I think is really key and really important. And I would say traveling around that it's still a very young, uh, it's, it's young in the minds of lots of schools and districts. And I, I think the biggest component is we can't make it another thing. We just have to show that it already can link perfectly well to the pre-existing curriculum that's already being taught wherever you are. Evan, it, and I think, Steve, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, Evan, did you want to jump in and, and say something? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I would agree with a lot that Steve has said. And I think, you know, here in the U.S., we've, um, we've, we've had different entry points to talk about global citizenship, whether it's been from a social emotional learning standpoint, whether it's been about, you know, looking at different um, pillars, <clears throat> pillars for citizenship. And um, I think that it's still in its, in its infancy um, because oftentimes it's hard for um, adults that are working in our, in our school systems to see how, you know, what we do here has an impact and an effect on others around the globe. So I think the, the, you know, right now, the more that we begin to reflect and now, you know, more than ever, the, our certain set of circumstances, I think has, has forced or will force us to reflect more on um, what we're teaching and how we're providing this um, to be woven into the curriculum that, that we already do. Right, right. So it sounds like, you think that we've got a, a ways to go yet. Jeremy, what what can you add to that? Yeah, I was just, you know, thinking, you know, if there is a silver lining to anything that we're going through right here, it's the idea perhaps that this virus has created a scenario that has profoundly interrupted the most immediate um, you know, and our, you know, has it interrupted everything about our, our daily lives, and it's almost impossible to ignore. Um, and I think sometimes within a global citizenship curriculum or programs, we sometimes talk about things that can be quite abstract um, for students. So, you know, for example, this idea of global migration, um, you know, the idea of global migration is still centered in 
regional pockets, you know, war migration, perhaps in countries surrounding Syria, for example, or environmental migration in Central Asia. But for a lot of students in the U.S., those ideas are, are, are still can be quite removed. But this situation no longer sort of makes an issue of global significance removed because everyone is now confined to their homes. So you know, I think that you know, the central question was, you know, what, uh, are we preparing our students to be global citizens? And I think the answer is that there have been profound strides in diversifying and deepening curriculum. But it's clear that we need to do a lot more. And this situation perhaps gives us um, one more piece of motivation to dive further into the work. Right, right. Well, and I, I do agree. I think we have made some great strides and we do have a ways to go. Um, Melissa, as a mom, do you, and also as a school board member, have you seen the, the whole issue of, of trying to be good global citizens? How's, how's that trickled down for your kids? So the, Terming it as global citizens, I feel like that's something that we definitely don't do. <laughs> um, I feel like my kids are um, being taught to be good citizens within their schools, um, within their community. Um, I, as we were, as you guys were all talking, I was thinking about. Um, in elementary school, they're taught that they need to be responsible, respectful. Um, there's two others, um, problem solver and peace, peacemakers um, or peaceful. And I feel like those, um, those traits or those, um, those skills are taught to them as um, citizens of, their, of where they are now, but that it's not relayed to them in the terms of global citizenship um, and possibly a little bit more as they as they get into high school um, where they start caring more about other things that are going on outside of themselves um, but I do definitely see that you know this um, what we're going through now um, can open many doors to to talking about this further. Um, with the kids themselves. Right. Because uh, they are watching the news. They are listening to their parents talk, especially since we're all, we're all at home. And I think it does open a lot of doors for those, those conversations of, of broadening that perspective. Steve, did you want to jump in? Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to just say what Jeremy said is so powerful and so true. And, and Melissa, to alleviate maybe some of that stress with the word global, I know, for example, last summer I did a professional learning two days in, in rural Arkansas. And um, immediately we went to the word civic instead of global, right? But, but we still utilize things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and Targets to launch ourselves into pinpointed points where these are globally identified needs, but they quickly can be localized if we just take it through a different lens and really look internally at the different communities that we're a part of. Now, that's not always the case for every target, for example, but it's, it's, you know, it's very possible and many of those are very universal. So sometimes it's just a vocabulary choice that can be an entry point into uh, global thinking. And again, if we're looking at things like 
social justice standards from something like teaching tolerance. So we're looking at a wellness wheel and wellness indicators, things that can be more globally universal, but localized and personalized, um, I think can be really powerful entry points to global citizenship. Thank you for adding that, Steve. I was listening to what you guys were saying and what I kept thinking of, especially when Jeremy mentioned that this has definitely got all of our attention. That's, very true. We're all very, very focused on this, and rightly so, um, this situation. And it makes me wonder, um, going forward, what do we need to think about differently in terms of what we need to actually teach kids in school? So how does that change? Because we have to consider that this generation is going to be handling situations like this, and we hope more successfully. So what has to change about what we actually teach? Melissa? Um, So one of the things that I see um, coming out of this is teaching them more flexibility. Um, It's it's kind of required at this point. Um, And when they're able to be more flexible, they can bounce back, I think, a little bit easier. Um, They, you know, I, I feel like some of the like technology issues and things of those nature, like they're, that's more first nature for them. Um, but I, we sometimes can get so rigid in our expectations and, and our schedules and, and how things are done that we don't think about being flexible. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. School has not been a very flexible institution over the last several hundred years, particularly in the U S. Jeremy, what did you have to add to that? Yeah, I would just sort of build off of that idea. I think one of the things that maybe some of the the other parents on the line can verify this as well, but a lot of uh, feedback that we're hearing from parents is the the idea that um, both professional parents are still trying to work from home and they're trying to support the and facilitate the learning of their student. Um, and I think some of what I'm hearing is that our students are lacking some skills in self-management and project management, because in more normal traditional school, you know, it's so regimented and structured, um, and we don't provide these more flexible project-oriented um, uh, scenarios maybe as frequently as we need to, so that when a situation like this demands that a student take more ownership of their learning, um, they're able to to do that successfully. I would l- personally love to see that because as a teacher, I believe that that leads to higher engagement and is just extremely beneficial for students and for teachers. Evan, what would you like to add to that? I would say from my perspective, um, it's important to be able to articulate um, a lot of the discussion around, you know, global citizenship and, um, you know, social emotional um, competencies, you know, that helps such as self-awareness, um, you know, self-efficacy, a lot of that self-regulation, um, self-awareness. And um, the other part is that the more that folks that are in positions like myself and like, you know, that are in district level administration, folks like Melissa, that are on school boards that get it right it opens up it opens up that pathway to bring in some of these things because 
you know, at the end of the day, you know, we are the gatekeepers, you know, like it or not, whether we want that title or not. And, you know, we're the ones that that really, you know, will be able to either create barriers or remove barriers for some of these new um, some of these new ideas to education, um, particularly what we want to do to teach uh, children and the students that we're trying to develop, you know, that eventually become adults. So the more that we can um, articulate um, this work and articulate what it means um, to provide some of these skill sets and the competencies and then be able to work with folks like Steve and Inspire Citizens um, and other groups as well, I think that that helps that helps the bigger picture. So as long as those that are the stakeholders and decision makers get it, it always allows for an even easier path of entry to um, to bring this into the into the school systems. And this is an opportunity, the way I see it, because everything has been a little bit broken open about how we look at school right now. And very suddenly, from all of us, I think that students found this to be a sudden change. Teachers did, administrators, even state leaders. This situation happened very quickly and very suddenly. So it is an opportunity for an opportunity for us to really rethink things going forward. Steve, what would you say to, to what how students, what they actually learn should be changed going forward? Well, first of all, again, I thought all the answers are fantastic. Um, something that I would always want to put at the foundation of any um, sense of civics and citizenship is compassionate empathy. And um, I think it's hard to you know, impact sustainable development. It's hard to impact collective wellness or social justice if we only have a level of cognitive understanding or cognitive empathy, if that. I think right now we're living, we're seeing firsthand how compassionate is our global society or our local, you know, local societies during this time. And, you know, I think when we start to feel and build relationships that move people from cognitive empathy to a compassionate level of empathy, then you start to be able to understand things like equity and diversity and justice and environmental issues, et cetera on a level that I think can really impact change and really bring the classroom experience to life. Because I think in the end, both teachers and students and parents, I would imagine as well, they want their kids to, to have a why, right? We need a why right now that's going to bring us together. And we want to allow ourselves to utilize school, hopefully, as a way then to make that community impact that's positive and good and, and even ethical you know, getting into even studies of ethics and having those discussions as well, I think is extremely critical. I agree. And, and going back to that whole thought of, of having that why, if we don't have that purpose, and if we, if we can't find that, if we can't, if we can't truly feel that it, it, it makes it really hard to plan and move forward. Um, the next question I'd like to go ahead and, and pose to this to this panel is, you know, how we are trying to, to take this global education and this global, global citizenship and really create leaders. We're looking at, you know, growing up this, this group of children to, to take us to that next level. And could I ask you, what skill set do you think that they need? And, and how, or has that changed over the past couple of months, given the fact that we're dealing with this pandemic? Who'd like to jump in on that? 
I, I can go Steve? ahead. Mm-hmm. Sure. Go ahead. Um, we actually run a, um, a global leadership program as part of our student empowerment piece when we work with schools and we're actually running it all the way down to the little ones. We, we start in uh, pre-K and run all the way through grade 12. We often just really look at kids. We've talked a lot about project-based learning and what it takes to be um, a collaborator and a leader in that type of setting. And we we work through a project cycle that we call Empathy to Impact, where it's asking, basically it's four stages, care, aware, able, and impact. And and what what we try to get our leaders and students to be able to do is identify you know, something you care about in your community. You, you, you have the ability to recognize when there's a challenge. You understand how to listen. You can do a needs analysis, for example. Aware goes into things such as um, deep research. You know, do we understand how to interpret media, graphs, graphicacy? Do we, you know, can we tell when a chart is lying to us, for example? Um, observations of our, of our communities. And then that able piece is that piece of, can I amplify my teammates? Can I amplify my skills? Do I have a toolkit of uh, thinking for systems thinking, et cetera? And then lastly, what is action? And really helping kids and leaders to see that there's many pathways to action. Sometimes action can be quite small, and obviously sometimes action can be quite significant. So as we get kids through that empathy to impact cycle, we have about a toolkit of about 40 to 50 tools and skills that we work with kids on that are specifically towards leadership and teamwork. That sounds amazing. I even just the the thought of going from empathy and then bringing it straight to impact with all of those little tools along the way is is fantastic. Melissa, as a mom especially, you know, what do you see as the skill set or or the skills that our children need to really step up as leaders as you have in your local community as a school board member what what do kids need to do that so in our in our school district we talk a lot about um collaboration and communication and um emphasizing more soft skills um being able to um, interact with their peers and, um, you know, work together on projects, things of that nature. Um, and I feel like, so one of the, one of the things um, our superintendent is always talking about is that um, when we were educated, we were working towards being something. We were going to school to be a teacher or to be an architect or a lawyer. Um, And now um, schools are preparing kids to be anything. Um, And that there's, you know, that there's careers and and life choices out there that we don't even know about yet. Um, And so all of these the, the skills of being able to communicate with one another, to work well together, um, to be, to, to have critical thinking skills, um, and, um, to, to be an innovator, all of those types of, of skills I think are, um, especially important. And, um, we can see that a lot more now, um, you know, the, that, that concept of preparing them for anything. Um, especially hits home these past couple weeks. 
Well, I think that's just so profound. I'm just that whole mind shift of preparing kids to actually be a a static profession as opposed to preparing them to be anything. That just that really embodies what we're what we're trying the the skills that we're trying to to give to all of our kids. Jeremy, do you have anything that you'd like to add about about the skill sets that our kids need to be leaders? Jeremy, are you there? Maybe Evan can jump in. Sure. You know, I would I would say this to look at it from a different perspective. I think that um, our students already possess a lot of the skills that they need. Um, I would say the adults need to look at it from that standpoint and how can we help facilitate and help grow a lot of the existing skills that they already have. You know, specifically, you know, the idea that for a lot of our young people right now, the way in which that, you know, they're being educated, given the current state, um, is more to their their skill set and their way of life, right? They are used to, you know, communicating with others virtually. Um, they're a lot more confident with that. Um, they're used to utilizing technology. And also, um, you know, kids are honest, right? And because they are, oftentimes, you know, we we don't see that as a plus, but this is really an opportunity to for us to to build upon that um, and get some ideas from our young people, talk to them, figure out it, what is it that, that they want to do? What is it that they need from us? And our job is to support them and provide those resources so they can be successful. That's fantastic. And I think you hit the nail, the nail right on the head when you, when you mentioned that our kids are honest. And if we want to know what, what they need, all we really have to do is ask them and they have no problem letting us know. Jeremy, I see you're back. What would you like to, to add on to that? Yeah, sorry about that earlier. Um, you That's know, okay. I, when I when I think about this question of of skill sets or have the skill sets changed now from in the past, I actually think that the skill set is pretty timeless in many ways. And I'm you know just thinking back to um, just some of the writing of Aristotle and he what he believed was that humans can't arrive at happiness alone. Like happiness requires participation in the wider polis. And so, you know, this idea that productive world citizens, um, they're not only smart people, but they also have to have these timeless skills and values and habits of mind necessarily necessary to, to be successful personally, but also to be successful collectively. Um, I think maybe the one thing that is a little bit different about contemporary culture, and I think maybe this scenario is causing us to significantly reevaluate is the idea or overemphasis on personal achievement. Um, You know, now we're being forced to think in very, very community-oriented ways and very family-oriented ways um, in a way that maybe the privileged situation that we've enjoyed over the course of the past century, um, you know, no longer allows us to sort of think in that way. So. That's a really interesting point because you're right. At Right now, we are being asked to restrict our own freedom, for example, thinking about the more vulnerable of our population. 
the elderly, the uh, people that already have pre-existing conditions, and just the overall health of everybody. And I know as Americans, we're a very individualistic society, and we're not um, very apt to make decisions about our own life and our own freedom based on the collective good. So that is definitely a shift. So given the fact that everything has changed and changed so quickly and so globally, I'm wondering what is sort of the next step? What's the next step for schools? What's the next step for teachers? What's the next step for parents? Because I don't believe that we can go back to business as usual. And I don't think that we necessarily should go back to business as usual. Evan, what do you see as our next step from where you're standing? Well, I'm glad you posed this question because, um, you know, right now, as a as a whole, I think we're in survival mode, right? And we're trying to make it to through the next day or to the next day. Um, but the reality is that we are going to go back, and this will this will pass. But you know, I'd really like the further conversations about. What is the plan, you know, moving forward? How can we address some of these things? How can we reflect on some of the deficiencies that we had um, that, you know, as we spoke about earlier, were exposed? But now how can we change that to move forward? And um, I think that it's important that we look to history. Um, you, know, you know, we've had a lot of parallels globally um, and also here, you know, in the U.S., um, not to this magnitude, but we, you know, within the last, you know, couple decades where we can remember where there were some some crises that were on a national level or affected, you know, major cities and how did they respond, right? Because all those education systems were, were affected, whether it was 9-11 or whether it was, you know, um, the hurricanes uh, like Hurricane Katrina, you know, how is it that, you know, we can learn from those experiences and and a lot of what necessarily what to do, but not what to do and be mindful of some of the challenges that were faced um, and how we can build upon that. Because, you know, now our education system has been turned upside down and we're and we will be starting from scratch. You know, um, so what does that look like? How do we move forward? How do we build on the experiences that we've had now um, in terms of this new learning style and also the fact that. Um, we have to be mindful of what that transition is going to look like, right? Because now we're all going to be reintegrating back into society and, you know, what, what type of support is going to be needed for um, students to come back and also for teachers, but also for parents to feel safe once again, right? To, to leave their children, um, you know, alone and in the hands of other adults. So, um, I just hope that that the conversations begin to also speak about next steps and moving forward, um, even though we are right now in the, in, the, in the midst of everything. Exactly. And I wonder, Melissa, from the you're you have a unique perspective because you're a parent. So you're sort of on the ground with your children, but then you're also in a school board. So you have a, a bit of a systemic um, perception as well of what's happening. What do you feel like the next steps are? So something that Evan just said about how we are all going to be reintegrating back into life, um, you know, that just, that struck me. Um, you know, it will be interesting. We're not going to jump back into 
how things were. We're not going to, as a, as a mom, I'm not going to expect to send my kids back to school and then pick up where they left off. Um, there's going to be some, some hiccups. Um, and from the school board perspective, um, you know, we're going to need to consider, um, some of the mental health challenges that could come out of this, um, both with students and with staff. Um, the, you know, th- there's going to be a lot of social emotional things that are going to come up that we might, we can't even like predict. Um, but, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it, it will be interesting to see like, some of those further conversations as we get more answers um, as to when things might even start to turn back around. Um, I think with everything being as up in the air as it is, it's hard to have those conversations um, without more information. It is. It it definitely is. And we're in such an uncertain place right now. Um, But I I pose the question because I really want us as educators and gatekeepers, as Evan said, to think about what we're learning from this experience, the impact on global education, and what are the next steps in terms of moving this this knowledge forward. Melissa, did you have something to add? Yeah, I just I just wanted to kind of circle back to our our first question where we were talking about the what has been exposed as. Uh, across global education as a result of this pandemic. And I think that we've seen a lot of inequities exposed. And we, we talked about that a little bit earlier. And when we're taking a look at what's next, what I'm really, really terrified of is that we're going to ignore everything that was exposed. Because uh, right now we're really seeing a clear delineation between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, people who have access to technology people who have access to jobs that that they can do remotely, um, people who have uh, the access to food. And when we when we move past this, the thing that I hope with my whole heart and my whole soul is that we don't just go, oh, okay, we don't need to think about that anymore. I, I think we really need to make sure we're looking at that piece and figure out what we're going to do about it. Yes, that we learn from this and definitely use this as an opportunity. Steve, what what did you have to add to this? Well, to, to kind of combine what Jeremy was saying earlier and what Melissa just said is the question being is, are we going to go back to you know business as usual? And I think utilizing that term business in there, in essence, you know, we start looking at things like what are we what are we measuring in terms of what makes a, a student or a, a human, a young human successful, right? And I think that, you know, collective wellness and um, individual, in a sense, academic achievement, if you want to call it, that doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, right? So we, I think, as teachers, it gets tricky because we are still being led by the forces often above us, things like the college board, right? Um things like even Pearson type of, of, of groups that are pushing, you know, standardized tests and they're pushing things that I don't think show the human side of learning in the way that we, we need to be addressing, right? So my, my call to action would be reevaluating the way that we imagine success and triangulating that in ways that we empower teachers, first of all, to be able to 
be the experts and the masters in the room in the sense, not, not of the learning, but of the, the assessment and the understanding of the children that they're working with triangulating that with student um, sharing of, of, of their global competency. And I think global competence can pull all of this together. And then we can bring in certain things like the standardized tests as a way to, you know, just keep tabs on things and triangulate that information. Because I think if we go back to business as usual um, and everything is still measured in the same way it is, the stress and anxiety comes back and we start to, over time, forget what we can learn from this experience. Yes. And that also brings to mind that I've been seeing a lot of things shared on social media. And then we had a conversation here at the edge table about the opportunities that kids have had to sort of take ownership of their own learning. And we had one kid on the show sharing how they were starting to do gardening and another child had taken up the ukulele. And, and, uh, and Nicole, real quick to jump in on that, there's nothing you can't link to those things from science or from persuasive writing or from the standards that already do exist that will eventually end up potentially on things like the standardized tests. So again, there's that idea that you can give kids the, the keys while you're still able to bring them back to some of those core things that, of course, we still need to embed into curriculum, correct? Exactly. But giving them more ownership and agency over education and losing some of this flexibility that we've gained um, in in the uncertain times that we're living in, which has been a silver lining in my opinion. I would like to thank you all for being on our panel this evening. Um, We were really lucky to have a panel full of people with such wide experience and global perspectives and um, really different, different perspectives as a mother, as district administration international educators. Um, What a rich conversation and thank you. And thank you for pulling up a seat and being part of our show today. Please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the Edutable. We would love to hear from you. Also remember to check out the articles and videos on our website at theedutable.com and to subscribe so that we can deliver all of this original content to your inbox. Thank you again for listening and remember that children always benefit when parents and educators work together. And just one last thing, I just want to remind everybody, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a beautiful review because I think that we have some great content here. Thank you again to our panel and we will talk to you next time.